You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Teaching of the Master by Brother L.G. Sargent Part 3, Chapter 8, The Way of Non-Resistance Matthew, Chapter 5, Verse 38 to 42 Ye have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, Resist not evil. But whosoever smiteth thee on thy right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if any man would go to law with thee, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go one mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. When Jesus turns from the sanctity of God to the disciples' relation to other men, it is immediately clear that he is picturing them as sojourners in an alien world. They will be subject to oppression, injustice, contumely. These are not principles of God's law or of the kingdom which the meek are to inherit. They belong to the time of subjection before the inheritance is entered. But that is the time when men show whether they are in God's covenant and therefore whether the kingdom is theirs. If they are, then the principle which governs all their actions is resist not evil. Again, it is literally the evil. And it cannot mean the devil either of tradition or of truth, for whatever he is, he is to be resisted. The Revised Version renders him that is evil, the violent and oppressive man. But one commentator says, We need not ask as to the gender of Toponero, just as in chapter 5, verse 37, it meant the evil and sinful element in life, regarded from the abstract point of view, so here it is the same element contemplated as in action through an individual. The question is, what are we to do? Not with the evil in ourselves, but with the evil shown by others towards us. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. The law did not justify personal vengeance. Retribution was judicial. The Pharisees interpreted eye for eye, tooth for tooth, not as literally requiring mutilation for injury, but as technical legal terms which enjoined that compensation should be strictly commensurate with the injury done. 
so far as the time of Christ is concerned, we may say that the lex talionis was not in practice applied literally and was not interpreted literally in the prevailing view. What exactly was the original intention of the law is a more difficult question. In the Code of Hammurabi, the law, eye for eye, was applied with a rigidity which led to remarkable consequences. If a builder erected a house so badly that it fell down, causing the death of the owner in the ruins, the builder's own life was forfeit. But if it was the owner's son or daughter who perished, not the builder, but his own son or daughter must pay the penalty. Such a perversion of justice could only be based on an entirely different conception of human life from that in the Lord of Moses. The son or daughter is viewed not so much as an individual, each with a life which is inviolable by man's hand, but rather as part of the property or rights of their father. In the Lord of Moses, so far as relations between man and man are concerned, life itself is the supreme value to be safeguarded by law. Life with all its attributes as the possession under God of each living soul. There seems even to be a deliberate allusion to the Babylonian law in Exodus 21 verse 31. Here the law lays down that where an ox has been known to gore in time past, the owner's life shall be forfeit if it causes the death of another person. And it is added, Whether he have gored a son or a daughter, according to this judgment shall it be done unto him. So far as killing with intent is concerned, he that smiteth a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. No ransom is to be accepted for the life of a manslayer. But Dr. Hertz contended that this specific exception implies that money compensation was not excluded in other cases. The first statement of the law, eye for eye, in Exodus 21 verse 24, actually follows a provision for paying compensation to cover loss of time, and cost of treatment in the case of a man who is confined to bed by injury, verses 18 and 19. Other contexts also present difficulties of a literal interpretation, particularly that of Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, where it occurs in the Lord of Plotting Witnesses. In whatever way these clauses were to be applied, they established two legal principles. First, all were equal before the law. The tooth of the poor man was of the same value as the tooth of the princeling. The law declared his rights as a man of the seed of Abraham, independent of rank or wealth. Secondly, the law established measure for measure. Retribution, whatever its form, must be neither more nor less than the offence, neither exacting double in the spirit of vengeance, nor allowing the powerful to escape with the wrong half redressed. This principle of measure for measure is the essence of natural justice, 
and the only equitable basis on which law can be administered in the state. Yet it is precisely this which Jesus says is not open to his disciples. They, of all people, are not to exact their dues or maintain their rights. And there could be no clearer contrast between legislation to be administered by the state and the principles of living for the pilgrims of Jesus. The state must maintain equity between man and man. Jesus lays down the motive of conduct from a disciple to other men. What these principles of living are, he illustrates by three instances. First comes the personal insult, which is often harder to bear sweetly than material injury. As in Lamentation 3, verse 31, the blow inflicts indignity rather than injury. A blow intended to knock a man down would be struck with the right fist and therefore would land on the left side. Jesus would, in fact, seem to have the words of Jeremiah in mind, for the theme of the prophet in the context is the discipline of suffering when it is accepted as a yoke laid on a man's shoulders by the Lord. It is good that a man should hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silence, because he hath laid it upon him. Let him give his cheek to him that smiteth him. Let him be filled full with reproach. For the Lord will not cast off for ever. So the servant of the Lord hid not his face from shame and spitting. His own fulfilment of that prophecy is the perfect example of the precept applied. The pain and shame inflicted by the servants of the high priest or the soldiers of Pilate or Herod, the strain of the trial through a sleepless night and a morning of exhaustion, the scourging, the thorn wreath, the mockery of his royal claims, all these he bore without flinching in this silence of humility. But one incident saves us from too narrow an application of this saying. When in the inquiry before the high priest one of the officers struck him, Jesus did not literally turn the other cheek. With perfect calmness he called attention to the irregularity. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? He was not defending his own dignity. It was necessary for the very purpose for which he had surrendered himself to the power of men, that the illegality of the proceedings should be made clear. He died without fault. The blow had followed his refusal to answer questions before a prima facie case had been made out by witnesses, and it was one more evidence of the injustice of the trial. In the same spirit, Paul and Silas, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the gospel, insisted on the Philippian magistrates recognizing the illegality of their conduct. 
The next example is a submission to harsh legal exaction. The law mercifully protected the poor. If thou at all take thy neighbour's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that the sun goeth down. For it, that is his covering only, it is his raiment for his skin, wherein shall he sleep? And it shall come to pass, when he crieth unto thee, that I will hear, for I am gracious. But Jesus forbids his disciples to avail themselves of it. If a creditor demands the less costly undergarment, chiton, in pledge, the more valuable outer garment, himation, is to be surrendered too, even if it deprives the debtor of his covering for the night. Another example of putting the extreme case so as to enforce the lesson powerfully. The saying is illustrated from the opposite end by a story told of a rabbi who had suffered the loss of a cask of wine through the negligence of the coopers. He took their coats in order to reimburse himself, at which they complained to a distinguished teacher. Give them back their coats, was the judgment. Is that what you call dealing out justice? asked the rabbi. Yes, he said. Walk in the way of good men, as Solomon commands. Proverbs 2 verse 5 He gave them their coats, but they complained. We are poor people and have worked all day long and are hungry and have nothing. And the judge said, Come, give them their wages. Is that dealing justice? asked the rabbi. Yes, said he. For Solomon continues, Keep the paths of righteousness. Luke, in his account of the address Jesus gave after choosing the apostles, gives two similar sayings, but in a form which relates both of them to acts of violence. Unto him that smiteth thee on the cheek offer the other also, and from him that taketh away thy cloak withhold not thy coat also. The omission of right before cheek removes the qualification which makes the smiting a mere flick of contempt. The mention of the cloak before the coat implies the surrender of the undergarment when the outer has been snatched away by a robber. These details are two of many which enforce the belief that Luke is recording a different address from Matthew. But the variation throws added light on the sayings and widens their scope. The third example in Matthew carries non-resistance into the disciples' relations with authority. The word for compel has an interesting history. Herodotus applies it to the Persian system of conveying official dispatches by couriers, both horses and men being relieved at the end of each day's journey. This is referred to in Esther chapter 8 verse 10, which the revised version renders. He sent letters by posts on horseback, riding on swift steeds that were used in the king's service, bred of the stud. Royal couriers could impress into state service the common people and their possessions, 
and so by the 3rd century BC, the term had come to be used for requisitioning of services or property, pack animals or boats, for instance, especially for the transport of military baggage. The best illustration is an inscription of AD 49 in the gateway of the temple in the Great Oasis in which Capito, prefect of Egypt, refers to exactions which had been made and decrees that soldiers passing through the several districts are not to make any requisitions or to employ forced transport without the prefect's written authority. This indicates the abuse of authority from which subject peoples in the Roman Empire might suffer. In the Gospel record, Simon the Cyrenian is impressed into service by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross. And these are the only other New Testament occurrences of the word. Impressment was a mark of the humiliation of the people of God's kingdom at the hands of an alien power whom they called the lawless. The country was seething with unrest, and there were occurring outbreaks. The day was not far off when the Jews themselves would choose Barabbas, a bandit implicated in murders committed in the course of insurrection, rather than Jesus. It is in this atmosphere that Jesus commands submission to the powers that be, even when that means accepting a hatred foreign rule, response to official demands, even when power is being abused by some minor representative of the state, a willing and generous response which does more than is asked. While the command's main aim is to purge strife and bitterness from the heart of the disciple, it shows by implication the attitude of Jesus to worldly authority. The wider lesson was drawn by Peter, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Honour all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honour the King. So also Paul, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Render to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. The object which the Lord has in view in all these injunctions is to develop the character of the disciple into that of a citizen of the kingdom. But this presents a peculiar difficulty. If the disciple fulfills the command with the same object, his own self-development, then the motive becomes self-regarding and defeats its own end. The man who receives a blow in silence in order that he may be the more a saint is in grave danger of becoming a prig and prigs certainly do not belong to the class the Lord calls blessed. The Christ-like man suffers the blow, so that perchance he may win the giver of the blow, and it may be save a soul from death. It is then that love covers a multitude of sins. 
From the application, Jesus moves on to the principle. And in the next section, he shows the place of love as the active power of the disciple's life, love which must by its very nature look outwards from itself. This difficulty confronts the disciple particularly in carrying out the saying which forms a climax to the present section. In Luke, as in previous instances, a rather different saying enjoins submission to high-handed action. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. But in Matthew the thought has moved through a the response to insult, b. legal exaction, and c. official compulsion to d. the point where a man is free to comply with or to refuse a simple request. The words are in no way new. The law had commanded, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor and to thy needy in the land. Proverbs provides the germ of the parable of the importunate neighbour. Say not unto thy neighbour, Go, and come again, and tomorrow I will give, when thou hast it by thee. One of the essential qualities of righteousness in the Old Testament is that a man shall be good of eye, which means that he shall be generous in his outlook, in contrast to the evil eye, which is the sign of the niggardly, grudging heart. But Jesus is surely no less concerned than the sages of old with the disposition which is manifested rather than with the act of giving. And the generous spirit can rest content with nothing less than the well-being of the recipient. For this reason, while the request for help cannot be refused, the gift may not always take the form which the giver asks. The question has often been asked, Am I to give money to a man who will probably spend it on drink at the nearest public house? The present writer's answer would be unhesitatingly no. To give that which corrupts the recipient is not to give but to get. The return for it may be in self-righteousness at having literally fulfilled a command, or self-satisfaction at the emotional gluttony of giving, or it may be merely the taking of the easy way out of a difficulty. But it is not an act of love which moves outward to one in need. Yet if the Christ Spirit is there, the peal will not fall on deaf ears. There are other ways of giving than in money, in food, for instance, or in time or service. They demand more of the giver, are more troublesome and inconvenient, so much so that they may not be practicable in every case at any moment. It may not always be possible to take a man who asks you for money in the street and pay for a meal for him at a suitable eating-house but it is at least an instance of what is meant by giving for the recipient's sake rather than for one's own. In each of these sayings the Lord is painting in a phrase a mental picture which shows the principle in action. In the parallelism of this one saying there are two scenes. 
In the first, a man turns towards the petitioner at his elbow. He listens in an attitude of attention which reflects a ready heart. He puts himself in the other man's place. In the other picture, the man turns away. His head is averted with chilling disinterest. And Jesus says, in effect, Which of those men are you? Yet Jesus himself balanced the claims made on him. Though all men sought him at Capernaum, he said, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. He did not respond immediately when his mother and his brethren tried to speak to him. He refused a sign to the Pharisees when they asked for it, and he declined outright requests for aid, which was made in the wrong spirit. Paul in this, as in so many things, faithfully interpreted the Lord in word and deed, and it is to him that we owe an otherwise unrecorded saying which further illustrates the Lord's teaching. Ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities, and to them that were with me. In all things I gave you an example, how that so labouring ye ought to help the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. In writing to the Ephesians, he gives the example of the replacing of self-seeking by self-giving. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labour, working with his hands the thing that is good, that he may have whereof to give to him that hath need. So the believer will do good, revised version, work that which is good, to all men especially unto them who are of the household of faith. To do good and to communicate forget not, Weymouth, do not forget to be kind and liberal. For with such sacrifice God is well pleased. The self can only grow through forgetting self. The kingdom can only be attained through seeking the salvation of others. And while love as the motive of non-resistance to others is not lacking in the Old Testament, see for instance Proverbs 25, verse 21 to 22, in the words of Jesus the principle is expressed fully and finally.
The Teaching of the Master by Brother L.G. Sargent Chapter 9 The Standard of Perfectness Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 to 48 Ye have heard that it was said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may become the sons of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more? Do not even the Gentiles the same? Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. By whom was it said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy? The first clause, so often on the lips of Jesus, is quoted from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. I am the Lord. A finer description of true neighbourliness than this chapter would be hard to find, for it includes generosity, truthfulness, integrity and justice, consideration for the afflicted, equity in judgment, freedom from malice or vindictiveness, and sincere effort for mutual understanding. There has already been more than one occasion for referring to it in this study. The second clause quoted by Jesus is not to be found anywhere in the law, and while the term neighbour in the verse quoted is limited to Israelites, the same chapter states, And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, ye shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The same Lord of love, therefore, applies to aliens as to kinsmen. Moreover, one of the most impressive provisions of the law precludes haste against the people from whom Israel had suffered most. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a stranger in the land of Egypt. If the Israelites were commanded to consume and utterly destroy peoples whom they conquered, the object is declared to be to save themselves from corruption by pagan immorality. The one case where this motive does not seem to enter is in the command to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. But this was a commission to execute a divine judgment. No justification can be found here for a spirit of human vengeance. 
The Lord's words, therefore, must interpret the current or traditional attitude rather than the intention of the law. The Jews had an unenviable reputation as men-haters. Theodorus Siculus speaks of Moses as having enacted for the Jews their misanthropic and lawless customs. And Josephus has to meet similar charges from a number of writers in his reply to Appion. The linking of such sentiments with the name of Moses is an obvious perversion and is of a piece with the scurrilous legends about Jewish origins which these authors retailed. But they show the general opinion of the Jewish attitude to the Gentiles. Schürer says, An exhaustive enumeration of all the Greek and Roman authors who from the beginning of the second century after Christ expressed themselves in a hostile manner against the Jews would furnish a list of distinguished names. Almost all the authors who have to speak of the Jews at all do so in a hostile manner. How far are these charges justified? The distinctiveness of Jewish law would arouse resentment and afforded Haman his chance to play on prejudices against them. Men also spoke against the early Christians as evildoers, because their faith demanded separateness from the life of a pagan society. Did the Jews likewise suffer an unjust imputation because of their faithfulness to God's law? No doubt they did. But this does not wholly account for their bad name. To a separation which under a misinterpretation of the law had become arrogantly self-righteous, they added a bitter resentment of foreign control, and Paul could rightly describe them as being contrary to all men, at cross-purposes with all mankind. Jewish thought committed two errors. It first sought to limit the definition of the neighbour to whom love was due. An example is the lawyer who, willing to justify himself, asked, Who is my neighbour? His question is answered by another. Who was neighbour to him that fell among the thieves? Go and do thou likewise. Secondly, they presumed themselves free to hate those whom they supposed they were not commanded to love. Jesus does not inculcate a sentimental attachment to enemies rather than friends, but a quality of living which embraces both. Much difficulty in understanding the command arises from the emotional associations of the word which confuses loving with liking. The emotion by which we are drawn towards those who show beauty of character is sound. Without it, life would be drab and gross. But there is a love which is a constant attitude of mind, knowing no limits, a response to human need which is unfailing. Is a man poor? He may need our help materially. Is he rich? He may need our help spiritually. Is he perverse and oppressive? Will he go to any length to do us an injury, even to his own hurt? For despitefully use implies as much. Is he an opponent of the truth who will inflict suffering on those who profess it? There are always some who will and do. 
then he is all the more in need of our example in returning good for evil, and our prayers that his eyes may be open to his own peril. It is not for us to judge him unworthy of salvation and to act on that judgment. God is judge, and vengeance is his. But what does God himself do? Light and water are the prime needs of physical life, but Jesus, as a poet, does not name them in those general terms. He uses the concrete images of sun and rain. It is the quality of poetry to mean more than it says, and the meaning of Jesus is that men depend for their existence, not on the indifference or even the tolerance of God, but on his active love. The words are so beautifully simple that we read them without a quiver of an eyelid, but their implications are all the more profound because they occur in this context. For it is the very purpose of the Sermon on the Mount to show that God is bringing many sons unto glory, and that they cannot be his sons unless they are like the Father. They cannot receive that full and final adoption which is the redemption of the body unless they have come to reflect God as he has revealed himself in his Son, the Beloved, the Only Begotten. The divine love which is revealed in the sermon is therefore essentially discriminating and selective. Like the love drawn from us by the good qualities in our friends, it is said of the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is because the Father's good pleasure is to give them, and not others, the kingdom prepared for them. The statement, the meek shall inherit the earth, has a threefold implication. One, judgment must be exercised to select those who are meek. Two, there is a decision that they, and no others, are the fit ones to inherit the earth. And three, there must be a divine intervention to throw out the proud and bring the meek into possession. Judgment, both to make a choice and to give effect to it, is therefore an essential concomitant of the love of God. And the love between the Father and his sons is essentially mutual and responsive. But while the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, the fact is that men cannot begin to be lovable until God has loved them. And Jesus shows that it is an act of God's love to give them the conditions of life without which they cannot know him. This act of love not only comes to men without regard to what they are, but it is not even limited to what they may become. It is free and unrestrained, and not evoked by the quality of those to whom it is given. So much Christ's words declare. For this we can see a reason. No man can be predetermined to love or made to become a son of God. The very ideas are self-contradictory. The only love from men which can be of value to God is that which they give of themselves. It must be the self-surrender of individual personalities and independent wills. But being frail flesh dependent for life on his spirit and his breath, 
They cannot even surrender themselves without his help. They cannot love freely unless they are lo freely loved. The love which gives them life must give them also freedom. Freedom to respond or to spurn the love which comes to them. It is no solution of this problem to say that God gives the gift of his love to those whom he foreknows will love him, and that other men benefit only incidentally. Undoubtedly sun and rain are among all things which work together for good to them that love God, and all things are for their sakes. Undoubtedly he foreknows them, and worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that they should be to the praise of his glory. But to say that this truth, glorious as it is, controls or conditions God's initial gift of love to man as man, is to rob Christ's words of meaning. Jesus says that God maketh the sun to rise, and sendeth the sun on the evil and good, just and unjust. It is his deliberate action to include both in the scope of these gifts. And this action of God is the type and pattern of love towards enemies. But if God gives sun and rain to Smith, who is now evil, because he knows that Smith will repent, then his action towards Smith is different in kind and quality from his action towards Jones, whom he knows will not repent. Any such distinction in the motive and quality of God's universal gifts is excluded by the words of Jesus, nor could it be otherwise if man's love for God is to be a personal response to God's love to him. To confine this love as love to those whom God foresees will respond to it, will be a denial of its very nature and stultification of its very aim. This conclusion may lead to a step further. It is sometimes argued that when John writes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the world which is meant is the future order and not that which now exists. A sufficient reply is that cosmos has no such meaning in John's Gospel. It refers always to the existing order, and usually contrasts the darkness of the world with the light shining from Christ. But a further answer is that God gave his Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The world which God loves is therefore the world of the perishing, the world which is his enemy because of sin. And therefore Dr. Thomas was profoundly right when in Elpis Israel he combined John 3 verse 16 and Matthew 5 verse 44 in one pregnant sentence. The two passages in which Dr. Thomas refers to this redeeming love are fundamental to his thought and lay the ground for a true doctrine of the atonement. The first is in part 1, chapter 4, where the author describes the Adamic world which was constituted by the sentences past and the new law given on the expulsion from Eden. He writes that though transgression upon transgression marked man's career, God so loved the world that he determined that it should not perish, 
but should be rescued from evil in spite of itself. In the other passage in part 1, chapter 5, Dr. Thomas is showing that the movement for reconciliation must necessarily come from God. He writes, God needs not to be appeased by man, and every system, therefore, which is predicated upon the notion that it is necessary, is not only unscriptural, but essentially false. He is already reconciled to the world, which he has always loved, although it acts the part of, and therefore is, the enemy of God. In these passages, which need to be studied in their full context to grasp the depth of Dr. Thomas's thought, the truth is shown unmistakably. God loves his enemy. His will towards all men is for their salvation. Therefore neither individually nor collective are they predetermined to death, and the love of God is turned towards the world in its need. This love of God, displayed in the impartial gift of the needs of physical life, finds its full expression in the gift of the means of eternal life. God commended his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul once again seems to have the words of Jesus in mind, for he says, When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. And in his death, Christ consciously identifies himself with his Father's love, giving his life a ransom for many. Within the simplicity of this saying in Matthew 5, verse 45, therefore, are enshrined the two profound and related ideas of the love of God and the freedom of man. Because of this quality of love, says Jesus, the Father in heaven is perfect. And as he is, so must they be. Their love, like the sun, must shine on good and evil, just and unjust, and must continue unchanged, uncorrupted, unmitigated. For such true love to others is to be the expression of an inward nature which instinctively issues in such a noble life, catching the very spirit of the generous God in the fellowship of Jesus, and seeking to act in its own small sphere as the Father acts towards all. Those who will give love only where they can get a return are the traders in love, the usurers of love. Those whose love is confined to the circle of human kinship have not risen above the level of the animals, for these too can passionately love their own flesh. To represent these two types of the love possible to unredeemed human nature, Jesus takes two classes of people. First, the tax-gatherers and toll-collectors, men who as a class valued money so much more than religion or patriotism that they were willing to become the minions of the alien rule. Even they could love where they were loved back. But what reward could anyone expect if they spent only to get a return? They got what they bought. Was not the account closed? For the second example, the Revised Version and others adopt the textual variant Gentiles and gives it good sense. 
To salute, even in classical Greek, could be used alongside of to love. James Muffet quotes an example from Plato's Republic. You seem to have no great love for money. Those who have made money esteem it, literally salute it, twice as much as those who have inherited money. The term, says Moffat, obviously denotes here and elsewhere more than to welcome. It approximates to the meaning to be keen upon, and this eager, desiring affection links it to agarpen. But Jesus uses the concrete term which calls up a picture of the demonstrative formal salutations between Oriental friends, implying nonetheless that the wishes for each other's welfare are genuine. He does not condemn this love so far as it goes. It is one of the best things in natural life. But it is shown daily by those who are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. If this is all that disciples give, they bear no mark to distinguish them as the people of the covenant. They reflect no particular likeness to prove their sonship of the Heavenly Father. Their righteousness does not exceed or overflow. How can they stand related to the kingdom of God? Let them love their enemies in the practical ways indicated, so that they may become, more correctly than be, the sons of their Father, in so doing, they will be perfect as he is perfect. An obvious recollection of the oft-repeated injunction to Israel, Be ye holy, for I am holy. What is meant by being perfect? Applied to men, it recalls the frequent expression, His heart was perfect, or not perfect, with the Lord his God. The perfect heart is undivided, whole, entire, complete in its integrity, and such is God. He is alike all through, if the expression may be allowed. As there is no incompleteness in God, so is there no schism in him, no self-division, and hence no inconsistency. He is the same yesterday, today, and for ever the same to all men. The Hebrew word for perfect, shalom, in the references above, is the same as for peace. Perfection is unity within oneself. Peace is unity with others. Jesus comes nearest to this sense in chapter 3, verse 2. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able to bridle the whole body. The Greek term in the later New Testament usually has the sense of mature, fully developed, as in Ephesians 4 verse 13, Philippians 3 verse 15, Colossians 1 verse 28. But James seems to follow more closely the shade of meaning with which Jesus uses the word. Let patience have her perfect, a full work, that ye may be perfect, complete, and entire, wanting nothing. And Jesus says to the young man, If thou wilt be perfect, go, sell that thou hast. This is the only other occasion that the term comes from his lips, 
although he uses the term perfected in Luke 13, verse 32, and John 17, verse 23. And strangely enough, the only time in the Synoptic Gospels that Jesus is said in so many words to love anyone is in Mark's account of the same incident. Jesus, looking upon him, loved him. To a remarkable degree, this teaching, regarded as the high watermark of the Christian ethic, is foreshadowed in the Old Testament and especially in Proverbs. Here we find the equality of men before God. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord giveth light to the eyes of them both. Proverbs 29 verse 13 the follower of wisdom is forbidden to rejoice over an enemy's discomfiture. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. Lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Another passage quoted in the New Testament corresponds closely with the Lord's words. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou wilt heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord reward thee. It can hardly be an accident that there is a double parallel between this last passage and the Lord's words. A. Giving bread and loving the enemy, and B. The Lord will reward thee, and what reward have ye? To trace the influence of these words of Jesus in the New Testament would need an exhaustive study of its teaching on love. But we may notice a few passages which manifestly reflect it. Romans 12 is interpenetrated with the Lord's sayings, but highlights are in verses 12, 14, 17, 19, 20, 21. Patient in tribulation. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Render to no man evil for evil. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, be at peace with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but to give place unto wrath. If thine enemy be hungry, feed him. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. To overcome evil with good is the quintessence of the teaching of the sermon. In this Paul could appeal to his own example as a follower of the Lord. Being reviled we bless, being persecuted we endure, being defamed we entreat. Peter, writing in a time of growing persecution, recalled the great example, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, threatened not. The same double allusion to the Lord's teaching and Isaiah's prophecy of him occurs in 3 verse 9. Not rendering evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but contrariwise blessing. For hereunto were ye called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Blessed are they, says the Lord. And while the influence of the command to bless to speak well of, leads Peter to choose the cognate word for blessing rather than to be happy of the Beatitudes. 
the association of ideas is nonetheless clear. The parallel in James' rebuke to blessing and cursing proceeding out of the same mouth should also not be missed. Other parallels may be found in the first of Thessalonians 5 verse 15, particularly interesting because of its early date. Galatians 6 verse 10, Let us work that which is good toward all men. And in second of Peter chapter 1 verse 5 to 11. True sonship to God is described in Ephesians 4 verse 31 to 32 in words which powerfully recall the whole teaching of the sermon, but especially Matthew 5 verses 44 to 48. The attainment of perfection is the aim in Philippians 3 verse 8 to 13 and Colossians 1 verse 27 to 28. And the knowledge grounded in love which grows to comprehend the love of Christ the theme of Ephesians 3, verse 18 19, can only be based on the Lord's interpretation of the love of God. Finally, there is a passage in Colossians 3, verse 12 to 15, which gathers up so many of the thoughts of the sermon. Meekness, mercy, forgiveness, love, perfection, peace that it must be given in full for the reader to trace the nuances and overtones for himself. But let it be noted that the whole passage rests upon the idea of covenant relationship with God. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Teaching of the Master by Brother L. G. Sargent The Teaching of the Master by Brother L. G. Sargent Part 4. Living with God 
Chapter 1, The Secret and the Manifest. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 6, and verses 16 to 18. Take heed that ye do not your righteousness before men to be seen of them. Else ye have no reward with your Father which is in heaven. When therefore thou doest alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have received their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have received their reward. But when thou prayest, enter into thy chamber, and having shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites, downcast in countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may be seen of men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have received their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, that thou be not seen by men to fast, but by the Father which is in secret, and the Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. The principles of Christian life have been unfolded, and the line of thought has been brought to a climax in which it is shown that all have their motive in love, and love has its source in God. By an orderly progression in thought, the next section of the sermon deals with the disciples' communion with the God from whom alone he can learn the love which he is to show. If he is a son and a servant of the invisible God, what form must his religious service take? Jesus first gives one general proposition which cuts at the root of all pious observance, performed for any other object than God himself. He follows this with three illustrations drawn from the three observances on which the Jews dwelt most, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, which cover three major aspects of spiritual life, regard for others, approach to God, and self-discipline. The reading Righteousness, adopted by the Revised Version in verse 1, the Authorised Version, Alms, connects the thought with Matthew 5 verse 20, the righteousness which abounds more than that of the Pharisees. Not only almsgiving, but all Pharisaic acts of piety were a theatrical performance in order that they might be seen as a spectacle by men. If, like actors in a play, the performers gained the admiration of their audience, that was all the recompense they would get. 
there would be none from the Father in heaven, for none was due. Their devotion was in fact offered to no God but themselves. The admiration they drew was incense only to their own nostrils. All their service was a ministry of self-worship, and mortal self-content was their sole reward. The saying is given, its sharp edge by the fact, that the Pharisees strove to gain a title to reward by their strict conformity to the law. Recompense in this life of virtue, and a fuller recompense in the future, which should rectify any present inequalities. These were the very ground of their religion. And in one phrase, Jesus sweeps it all away. Adolf Diesmann, a leading scholar on papyri and inscriptions throwing light on the language of the time, says the word used, meaning, I have received, constantly occurs in receipts, and in the light of this evidence, the words in the sermon acquire the more pungent ironical meaning. They can sign the receipt for their reward. Their right to receive the reward is realized precisely as if they had given a receipt for it. Almsgiving was rated so high that it tended to become synonymous with righteousness. And in the Apocrypha, at any rate, it is exalted into a means of atonement. Jesus ignores this fallacious doctrine of merit. If indeed it was known in this form to Palestine Jewry, where his teaching is grasped, no room will be found for it. His reference to sounding a trumpet may be based on a contemporary custom, such as the blowing of the ram's horn shofar at the time of public fasts during autumn droughts. The notes of the horn were heard in public places after each of the six benedictions which ended the prayers for rain, and almsgiving was then expected. But any literal element there may be does no more than provide the seed which flowers into a vivid metaphor for self-advertisement. Times were laid down with great precision for saying the Shema, and the daily prayer now known as the Eighteen Benedictions, parts of which may be as old as the first century. These were to be observed wherever a man happened to be, and the words of Jesus suggest that it was not always an accident if the Pharisees were overtaken by that hour while in the street, or even at the street corner, where they could be seen from two ways at once. Praying in the open was common enough for the rabbis to discuss gravely whether, and at what point in the devotions, one man may salute another, and whom he might legitimately salute. Fasting was required by the law on the Day of Atonement only, but custom during the exile established other annual fasts which marked disasters in Israel's history. See Zechariah 7, verses 3 to 5, and chapter 8, verse 19. Of these it is believed that only the fast of the fifth month, commemorating the demolition of the temple, was to be observed in the Lord's time. But public fasts were also called for in time of drought or general calamity. 
These were kept only on the second and fifth days of the week. A three days fast, for instance, would be observed on the Monday, Thursday and the following Monday. As these were market days, when the cities would be crowded with people from the surrounding countryside, there was an added temptation to sanctimonious display. Fasting on these two days throughout the year was not a general rule, but is mentioned in the appropriate tractate of the Mishnah and is referred to in Christian literature of the second century as a common practice of the hypocrites. The Pharisee of the parable, therefore, who fasted twice a week, would be very likely to think of himself not as other men, refraining from washing and sprinkling the head with ashes, earth or dust, were traditional expressions of mourning, sorrow or humiliation. The Pharisee, his wrinkles lined with ashes, carried down by the runlets of sweat over his unwashed face, must have looked a very sorry figure. Against all this, Jesus sets teaching which, arising out of the customs of the time, has every whit as much meaning for our day as for his. In charity, let not your left hand know what your right hand does. A figurative saying, obviously, proverbial in form, and perhaps a current proverb. In prayer, go into your own room and shut the door. A saying which in two phrases draws a living picture. Jesus does not mean that there must never be joining with others in prayer, whether in the assembly or in the home. But just as he has given a portrait of the hypocrite seeking publicity, so he gives, on the other side, a portrait of the disciple seeking privacy, and each picture tells its story of the man's mind. Finally, in fasting, Jesus says, in effect, go about normally without any outward evidence of what you do. Whether or not he abstains from food, there are many things in which the world sees no harm from which the disciple will fast continually for Christ's sake. But does he do it with the gloomy self-righteousness of the Puritan, or with the joy of life in Christ? It is right to abstain, to cut off the hand or pluck out the eye, rather than indulge in those things which may be a snare to ourselves or to others, but there are always some who seem to think that righteousness consists in finding fresh things which must not be done. This dwelling on the negative conflicts with the message of Jesus at several points. First and foremost, because the very heart of his teaching is the positive power of love. He blesses the poor in spirit, not the poor spirited. But it is also psychologically unsound, whereas the teaching of Jesus is as fundamentally sane as it is spiritual. Concentration on prohibition strengthens the force of desire. The true method of casting out the evil is by implanting the good. And finally, where such an attitude of mind does not fail in one direction, it incurs a greater peril in another. It leads to the tendency to draw attention to one's own righteousness. Would not some in modern times, whose road of life is signposted with don'ts, 
suffer the irony of Jesus as much as the disfigured Pharisees? As, however, there are many ways in which we may fast, there are even more ways in which we may display our fasting. Sanctimoniousness may be rarer today than when there was a more general standard of profession. It is a disease that battens on religious vitality. Yet every age has its own affectations and insincerities. Wherever there is zeal in spiritual life, there is a tendency to want not to be outdone by others, and hence to seek new ways of showing our earnestness. But to whom are we showing it? Just as from him that hath much shall be required, so the times of greater gain are those of greatest danger. It may be required of us that we shall do more than others, but not that we shall be seen to do more. And there is yet another danger which has an even closer connection with fasting. Perhaps we are unduly reticent in confessing our faults one to another. But some religious movements have shown only too strongly the opposite danger of parading our past and indulging in emotional orgies of confession which are really self-centred. On all these perversions of the religious life, the Lord's command has a direct bearing. The clue to the mind and practice of the saint is to be found in the repeated phrase, The Father which is in secret. He is the King Eternal, Incorruptible, Invisible, the only God. And those who love Him will live as seeing Him who is invisible. Withdrawing from distraction, they will come from time to time into a realm where the measure and standards of men no longer exist. Even with beloved friends there is a bound which cannot be passed even between man and wife in the highest of human unions, where mutual understanding may be almost intimate, there is, in the last analysis, a limit imposed by the very fact that they are two living souls, two conscious entities whose selfhood is bound up with their animate bodies. Who among men knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of the man which is in him? But there is one to whom all hearts are naked and laid open. Darkness is as light to him. The thought unspoken is heard by his ears, because he is beyond things seen, beyond the visible phenomena of the universe which he has created. And therefore, because the Father is in secret, he seeth in secret. And to the invisible one, the invisible things are known, along with awe at that penetrating knowledge and grief at the frailty which it reveals, there is joy for disciples in the fact that they are truly known. In private prayer they need not fear men's malice or misunderstanding, and they cannot seek men's praise, unless, God forbid, it be their own. Here, if anywhere in the world, they will be true because they are alone with the God of truth, and from such communion a fellowship may grow to reach its fullness in the day when they shall know even as they are known. 
being like the Son in whom the Father is made manifest, for they shall see him even as he is. Only to the man of faith can such a communion be possible. But he who has it will be in touch with reality. Not only so, but he will have a core of reality within himself, a touchstone for the half-truths that come from his own nature, for the shams of the world around him. He will be more than truthful. He will be a man of truth. He is unmoved by the judgment of men, not from pride towards them, but from humility towards God. The unbeliever walks wholly in the visible world. For him there is neither secret place nor invisible being. For him the only standard of value is in the wealth of men that can be seen, or the praise of men that can be heard. The changing scenes of life, like shadows thrown on a wall, are the only reality he knows. And through the phantasmagoria of living, he moves to the unbroken shade of death. If only he knew it, for him all is emptiness and a striving after wind. Among these walkers in a vain show is the hypocrite, who pretends to a knowledge of the unseen reality of which, in fact, he knows nothing but the name. He claims to be laying up treasure in heaven while his only treasure is on earth. The Greek of which hypocrisy is an anglicised form meant originally to distinguish between things and so to answer or interpret dreams. By some association of ideas now lost in antiquity, it came to be applied to declamation by an orator, or to take part in dialogue. From this the transition was easy to acting in a play, and then to the bad sense of feigning or dissembling in a part. Two instances in the Septuagint of Job, where it stands for the godless, profane, or impious of the original, widen the Bible usage far beyond its earlier meaning. They are, 34 verse 30, that the godless man reign not, lest the people be ensnared. And 36 verse 13, they that are godless in heart lay up anger. In the one case it is an impiety which lays snares for men, and in the other an impiety which harbours secret bitterness against God. And in both, the deceit has its root in unbelief. All sin, indeed, is practical unbelief. The fool hath said, in his heart there is no God. And from that denial all his violence and corruption grow. But there is a very real difference between sins committed when belief is overcome in an unequal contest with passions, and sins due to a deep-rooted denial of God. The former may be gross and foul, and those who commit them may be made social outcasts. The latter may be covered with a mask of conformity to social canons, but whereas weak belief may be strengthened till it brings forth repentance, in disbelief there is not even the germ of reformation. 
The man who thinks God will take no notice has no belief in God's righteousness. The man who acts as though he could deceive God has no belief in his reality. Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit with the object of obtaining a reputation for a greater generosity than they had shown, provide the classic example. It was necessary that right at the beginning of the church's history, the reality of that unseen spirit which they had despised should be shown with awe-inspiring power. It is this radical unbelief making it possible to combine a flattering tongue with iniquitous designs, which is so fiercely denounced in the Psalms. Hypocrisy is a major ingredient in all such sin, and Jesus was following an Old Testament tradition when he poured his most dreadful denunciations on the hypocrites. If there be a difference, it is that while the Old Testament condemns sins which were mixed with hypocrisy, Jesus goes deeper. He condemns hypocrisy as the root of sin. The man who begins by deceiving his fellows goes on to try to deceive God and ends by deceiving himself. He is a living lie. The light that is in him is darkness, and how great is that darkness! Truth cannot penetrate it, because it actively resists truth, and this has two consequences. For the man himself, salvation is all but impossible. He's on the way to the eternal sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of attributing the work of God to Beelzebub, which by its very nature excludes either forgiveness or restoration. And secondly, when he finds the light in others, he will be compelled to oppose it by every means, including persecution to the death. Hypocrisy is the most corrupting of vices because it sears the very conscience. The sins of the tax-gatherers and harlots were rank. There was no need in a community where the law was known for Jesus to explain the loathing in which such trespasses were held in the divine sight. But by their exclusion from polite society, the publicans and harlots were at least saved from hypocrisy. And therefore it was with true spiritual insight that Jesus said he called not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They, at any rate, had not deprived themselves of all power to respond. To tear the mask from hypocrisy was the reverse side of the teaching about the Father that seeth in secret. The disciple has a secret for which he goes into an inner room, and his secret is God. The hypocrite has a secret for which he stands at the street corner, but it is no secret for it is only himself a sounding hollow. But while the sins of the harlot are manifest, the sins of the hypocrite must be dragged into the light. There is nothing hidden, said Jesus, that shall not be revealed. And it was as the revealer and the judge that with searing words he laid bare the barren heart of the hypocrite. That Jesus speaks so often of reward in this sermon of love may seem strange, 
There is a measure of deliberate irony in the frequency with which the term for wages, hire, occurs in setting forth a contrast between the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness of the kingdom. Once only in the sermon is this particular term applied to the saints, though it is used in the good sense of the reward of the righteous. In Matthew 10, verse 41-42, Mark 9, verse 41, and Luke 6, verse 23, and in the epistles and Revelation. Everywhere else in the sermon, however, it has an ironic flavour. Those to whom it is applied are seeking a payment they will not get. A different route applies to the verb for your father shall reward you, shall give back, restore, return. The many renderings which this word receives suggests its wider range of meaning. The peculiar emphasis on reward in the sermon, therefore, is due to the fact that it is set over against the teaching of the Pharisees, and a distinction is pointed between their aim and the disciples. The Pharisees expect a wage for their works. The disciple is promised a bounty for his living faith. That reward has an important place in the teaching of Jesus is indubitable. Did not he himself, for the joy that was set before him, endure the shame? Yet it is morally impossible for the man who reveals the qualities which Jesus calls blessed to seek the reward for its own sake alone. The merciful man would not be merciful if he calculated the advantage of obtaining mercy. He would be a hypocrite, and when a testing time came his egotism would be laid bare. The peacemaker would be very unlikely to succeed in making peace if his real object was to gain the dignity of being called a son of God. And a man would be far from meek who thought that inheritance of the earth would be the due return for his meekness. It is a tragic absurdity to think, I will be meek, because that is the way to obtain the inheritance. I will be poor in spirit in order to be exalted, and then woe betide those who have trodden on me. In that way a man will attain nothing but an inverted pride. He will be a play-actor whose performance deceives himself, and in his unlovely self-righteousness he may not have even the Pharisee's reward of popular applause. Stated in this way, all these examples are manifestly absurd. Yet by just such incongruities under a thin disguise, the heart deceives itself in every age. Seek ye first the kingdom, has too often been read as a call to pursue with a joyless possessiveness the bigger returns which the next life can offer for the surrender of present pleasures, but meekness and the mercenary spirit cannot exist together. While this is a truth too often overlooked, it is no less true that God does set before men a prize to be desired and eagerly sought, and to despise the gift would be to despise the giver. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
when he bestows the gift which he has prepared, the Father who knows your secret relation to him will openly show his love for you. The reward is reward indeed, but it is above all else the expression of a relationship, the seal of fellowship, the evidence that he has ad adopted men and women as sons and daughters. Reward is the mark of God's delight in those who are redeemed and reconciled and embraced in his purpose. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If it is his good pleasure to give, is it not our good pleasure so to live in fellowship with him that we may receive the gift? And though the reward is to be gained by striving as athletes, gained as a precious prize by keeping our eyes fixed on the winning post, does not the very idea of joy in each other between the father and his sons exclude mere self-seeking, mere grasping at material benefit? The offer of reward from God to his sons is the final proof of his true personality. To an abstract supreme being it would be impossible. To a father it is not only possible but natural. And to those who are truly his sons, the reward is the occasion of responsive delight in that personality. When we are pleased with a gift, the choice of which conveys the very personality of a beloved friend, we say, it's just like him or her to send me that. And it is just like the Heavenly Father to give his children the kingdom. The gift is, as it were, a part of himself. He has planned it throughout the ages. He has prepared it with loving care. And for his children the gift is the bond of love. Teaching of the Master by Brother L. G. Sargent The Teaching of the Master by Brother L. G. Sargent Chapter 2 A Discipline in Prayer Matthew chapter 6 verses 7 to 9 And when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be ye not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of, 
before ye ask him. After this manner pray ye. Twice in the Gospels it is recorded that Jesus taught his disciples a prayer, and each time it is the same prayer, though on the second occasion he gave it in briefer form. The first is here in the sermon where, after a warning against Gentile volubility, he sets before them a model with the injunction, After this manner pray ye. The second is in Luke 11, verse 2 to 4, when a disciple who had seen Jesus at prayer asks, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And Jesus replies, When ye pray, say. Behind both his example and his warning, there is a historic background. It was customary for a rabbi to teach his own disciples a form of prayer which he composed. And Jesus, though he was not of the rabbinic schools and therefore was not recognised by the Jewish leaders, accepted the title of rabbi with which his followers addressed him. Especially did the rabbis provide fountain prayers, as they were called, containing in summary the substance of the longer petitions which were offered in the synagogues. The student, prevented from attending public services, who repeated the fountain prayer, was regarded as participating with the congregation in their worship, and therefore like the Lord's Prayer. They were expressed in the plural. John the Baptist had evidently continued the rabbinic custom. May we gather from John's teaching what the substance of his petitions might have been? Surely the central theme was the coming of Messiah and his kingdom, the manifestation of God's righteousness, the turning of the hearts of the people towards him, and the coming of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, so that the nation might be better prepared for the divine judgment which was at hand. Jesus' disciples were mostly those whose hearts had been prepared by John. The baptism and the descent of the Holy Spirit had revealed Jesus to John as the Messiah for whom he was forerunner, and the disciples who went with him gained a growing knowledge of the uniqueness of their Master. John's prayers may no longer have been applicable now that the Christ was in their midst, but more than that, the power of Christ's personality and the depth of his teaching would lead them to expect from him a prayer distinct and bearing the impress of his own character. The request in Luke may have been made by a disciple in the larger group outside the twelve, who had not heard the prayer given on the mount. Another side of the historic setting is reflected in the warning in Matthew against vain repetitions. Babble not much, as Tyndale has it, for they think that they shall be heard for their much babbling's sake. They think. It is their estimate or opinion. But how far from the truth. The Baal worshippers on Mount Carmel cried from morning till noon, O oh, Baal, hear us! The worshippers of Diana at Ephesus shouted for about the space of two hours, 
great Artemis of the Ephesians. How far had Jewish prayer been influenced by such heathen examples of battering gods with reiteration? Dr. Thurtle quotes examples from prayers for the Day of Atonement in which petitions are heaped up with every variation which ingenuity could devise. O Lord, do it for thy name's sake, do it for thy truth's sake, do it for the sake of thy covenant, do it for the sake of thy greatness, and so on forty times over. Answer us, O Lord, answer us, answer us, O our God, answer us, answer us, thou who art perfect, and so on until answer us is repeated seventy times. Confession of sins is likewise spun out into a catalogue of every imaginable fault. These are ancient prayers, conserving habits still older. Such importunity seems to imply not a childlike trust in the goodness of God, but a fundamental disbelief in either his love or in his reality in his love because a deity who needed to be stormed with petitions must be reluctant and capricious, in his reality because such wordy elaboration is really directed less to God than to oneself. How beautifully I am praying! How thoroughly I have left nothing unsaid! Such is the unuttered thought, and its root is the same when it takes the form how well they will think I am praying. Let it be added that extempore prayer may be just as hollow if its eloquence and fervour are designed to catch the ears of men. Much speaking translates a well-known word whose meaning is beyond doubt. It is used in the Septuagint rendering of Proverbs 10 verse 19. In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. The term rendered vain repetitions, however, is never found in Greek, except once in a very late writer, unless it be in reference to this passage. It has presented one of the linguistic problems which surround the prayer. The word is botologio, and is now usually regarded as formed from a Greek verb and an Aramaic root meaning vain, useless, which the Sinaitic Syriac version uses to render this phrase, do not be saying idle things. Thurtle, however, has an ingenious suggestion that it means to speak from Beth to Tau, that is, from the second letter to the last in the Hebrew alphabet, and is used to designate a system of praying alphabetically. The use of the acrostic form as an aid to memory has the sanction of inspiration, for it is found in several of the Psalms and in Lamentations. Some artificial regularity, such as acrostic, alliteration or rhyme, affords a means of recalling a composition in proper order. But in time the use of the device had degenerated into a means of spinning words. Thurtle again gives examples. Long prayers, sometimes in double acrostic, two lines for each letter. Labour through, as we might say, from A to Z, the clauses being framed to meet the requirements of the alphabet 
rather than the needs of the Spirit. In contrast to all such pretentiousness, the Lord marks the simplicity of the prayer he teaches by beginning with A, Abba, Father, and there remaining. It is a prayer in Aleph. From Beth to Tau is left to those who, for a pretense or show, make long prayers. This view, which is quoted here with due reserve, has the attraction that it makes the reference to the Gentiles ironic. Still thinking of Pharisaic custom, Jesus pierces their skin with a subtle shaft. The Gentiles had been before them in their mode of prayer. And whether Gentile or Jewish, such prayers were equally devoid of reality. For the Father knows before he is asked, and the true disciple, living in the reality of God's presence, knows that he knows and will give that which is good. By giving a form or model, Jesus did much more than accede to a custom. He established the need for discipline in prayer, and in so doing he gave the perfect example of depth of thought in brevity of words. True prayer is not a mere outpouring of emotion, any more than it is a mere exercise of the intellect. Men must choose the things for which they pray. Choose worthy objects of prayer, comprehending all genuine needs, and set in the framework of God's purpose. And then, with those objects in view, they must direct the heart, mind, and will to God. If we enter into prayer with a conviction of the reality of him whom we address, our mood will reflect something of Abraham's when he said, Behold now, I which am but dust and ashes, have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Yet Abraham was praying for his kinsman Lot, and we who pray not only to a friend but to a father cannot bar from our prayers intimate requests for the well-being of those we love. How often does Paul speak of making mention of believers in the various ecclesias in his prayers? If we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more must it please our Heavenly Father when we ask His good gifts for them? Even love, however, can become narrow and possessive. Memory of the prayer can ensure that the most personal petitions are kept within the universal framework of creative purpose. Testing our own prayers by the pattern will lead to the breadth of mind which is never distracted by the particulars and never lost in the contemplation of the entirety. Nor does restraint before the awfulness of God empty the prayer of passion. Rather, it raises the level, for prayer demands a discipline of feeling as well as of thought, and in the very conciseness of the Lord's words there is concentration of feeling. Phrases so simple hide their depth from casual eyes, yet hallowed be thy name says in four words all that can be said in the amplitude of the noblest of Jewish prayers. 
blessed and praised and glorified and exalted and extolled and honoured and magnified and lauded be the name of the Holy One, blessed be He. Only by discipline of thought can we so enter into the Lord's phrases as to see that they have the quality of poetry, of words raised by constriction to the highest power, and only then can we begin to apprehend the strength of emotion by which they both express and control. The economy and strength of the prayer's language are very apparent in its use of verbs. This is most notable in the first three petitions, where the order of the words in Greek is, Hallowed be thy name, come thy kingdom, done be thy will. The verb expressing action naturally tends to be the strongest member of the sentence. Here it is given added vigour by being placed in the strongest position. Moreover, scholars tell us that in the Greek these verbs are not only in the imperative mood, but in the tense which describes a state of action independently of time, and therefore they are in the most vigorous form. Professor James Hope Moulton comments that the language of petition to human superiors is full of periphrases whereby the request may be made palatable. To God we are bidden by our Lord's precept and example to present the claim of faith in the simplest, directest, most urgent form with which language supplies us. Did Jesus intend the prayer to be repeated? Luke's record when ye pray, say, answers the question affirmatively. Yet in the very act, Jesus saves us from attaching a superstitious importance to the words by varying them himself. We need not doubt that the prayer was in fact given twice. Jesus does not even despise literary device as an aid to recollection, for in Matthew the prayer has a marked regularity in structure, and the Greek shows assonance in the line endings. The purpose is clearly to provide for the prayer not only to be said, but to be taught. In almost entirely eschewing its public use, we have doubtless swung too far in reaction against its abuse. It is much speaking, not much praying, that Jesus condemns and he himself in the hour of his agony went away and prayed and spake the same words. Yet it is far better that the words themselves should never be used than that they should become a mumbled incantation. Meaning is greater than words, however perfect their choice. A churchwoman with more sympathy with liturgical forms than most of us has written, it is too often supposed that when our Lord said, In this manner pray ye, he meant not, These are the right dispositions and longings, the fundamental act of every soul that prays, but this is the form of words which, above all others, Christians are required to repeat. As a consequence, this is the prayer in which, with an almost incredible stupidity, they have found the material of those vain repetitions which he, he has specifically condemned. 
Again and again, in public and private devotion, the Lord's Prayer is taken on hurried lips and recited at a pace which makes impossible any realisation of its tremendous claims and profound demands. There is evidence for this perversion as early as the second century. The prayer is the Lord's because it was his gift to the disciples. There are echoes of it in Gethsemane in his use of Abba, Father, and his exaltation of God's will. Yet as a whole it is designed for their use, not his own. Allowing to the full his identity with human nature, could he say, Forgive us our debts, or with the Lucan version, Forgive us our sins. It was to the twelve that he said at the time of their testing and his, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And for them and those who have followed them, the prayer is, as Hugh Latimer called it, the sum and abridgment of all prayers, comprehending all that they can rightly ask and providing a standard by which they can measure the quality of their own utterance. If their prayer conforms in substance to the level and the scope of these thoughts, then, granting that it is sincerely offered, it is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Finally, this is not a prayer for the use of the unregenerate. His whole tenor involves not only knowledge of God's purpose, but a mind already at peace with him, and renewed after the likeness of Christ. Who else can say that they forgive all debtors? Teaching of the Master by Brother L. G. Sargent The Teaching of the Master by Brother L. G. Sargent Part 4. The Heavenly Father. Matthew 6, verse 9. Our Father, which art in heaven. In the Old Testament, Father describes the relation of God to the people whom he redeemed. As with so much of the most significant language of the prophets, the word has its roots in Moses. Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? In Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Nor is it a mere coincidence that the idea of fatherhood is found in the 
context of the verse in Deuteronomy 8, which Jesus quoted in the temptation. He treasured the passage in all its meaning. Through the knowledge that man lives by the word of the Lord, Israel were to come to know God himself, and to know him as a father who chastens his children in love. The theme is carried on in the prophets. When in Jeremiah the Lord says, I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn, the context offers a striking example of what this fatherhood means. It shows that in the end of their history, not only will Israel be physically regathered, but they will be spiritually restored. For they shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. God's parental love is expressed throughout their history in a divine education which leads Israel through sorrow and repentance to a new spiritual life in his kingdom. A remarkable verse in Isaiah seems to foreshadow the prayer by linking together Father, Redeemer and Name. Doubtless thou art our Father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is everlasting. Isaiah 63, verse 16. All these speak of fatherhood in a national sense. For it was as a people Israel were redeemed, as a nation they were constituted in covenant with God, and as a people and a nation they shall be restored. Only Psalm 103 verse 13 anticipates a more personal use of the relationship, and that only in a simile. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. But here also redemption is in view, for the Lord whom the psalm praises is he who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. The psalmist theme is the restoration of men and women to God. With the coming of the Lord, the term takes on a new character. Only in John is it used more often of God than in Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, the expression, Your Father, points the contrast between the children of God and the world, and in the very act calls on the children to bear witness of the Father to the world by their lives. The term marks also their entire dependence for all their needs on him who knows the fall of a sparrow. As their father he holds them in his hand, and whatever may in his providence happen to their bodies, he will not suffer one hair of their heads to perish. All this is carried forward in the invocation, Our Father, which at the same time declares the bond with one another. One is your Father, all ye are brethren.
Yet it is a remarkable fact that Jesus never joins himself with the disciples in the expression, Our Father. All through the Gospels he maintains a clear distinction between my Father and your Father. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of my Father. And only those who are in a state of correspondence with his will can enter into it. The same doing of my Father's will is the nexus of relationship to Christ himself. The truth of his messiahship is revealed to Peter by my heavenly Father. Christ alone is the way of approach to his Father, who has delivered all things unto him. Men's destiny will be determined by whether Christ confesses or denies them before my Father. For every plant which my Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. He will come in the glory of his Father. Even when he speaks of joining with them in fellowship, in drinking the fruit of the vine, it is my Father's kingdom. And to those who, having shown their love for the least of his brethren, have shown it for him, he says, Come ye blessed, not of your Father, but of my Father. In all this we have a foundation for the doctrine of the Father and the Son as it is unfolded in John's Gospel. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again I leave the world and go to the Father. Even in the place where, after his resurrection, Jesus calls his disciples his brethren and speaks of God as their father and his. He maintains a distinction which is more apparent in the original than in the English. Go unto my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. The definite article used before father in the first instance is reproduced in the interlinear version. I ascend to the Father of me and Father of you, and God of me and God of you. Jesus gives the term Father a new value, not through some spiritual genius of his own, but because he alone can fully reveal God as Father. As many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. It is because he himself is Son that he can give the right to others to become sons, for he alone can show the full meaning of sonship, and therefore of the fatherhood. And just as Christ shows the fullness of sonship by obedience, even to the death of the cross, so God shows the fullness of fatherhood by bringing his only begotten to the cross, and beyond it to resurrection. 
The father indeed chastens his son with the discipline of divine love. It is because God is the father of our Lord that he made him perfect through suffering. And therefore the fatherhood of God is revealed precisely at the point where it seems most hidden, where Jesus cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But Christ was made perfect through sufferings, not only for his own sake, but in order that through him many sons might be brought unto glory. And therefore the cross reveals the fatherhood of God, not only for him, but for those who believe on him. For them God is Father, because he is Redeemer. He is the Father that bought them through the gift of his own Son, that they might become sons by adoption. Whether for the literal or the spiritual seed of Jacob, the essence of his fatherhood is to be found in the divine act for them, which is described in the metaphor of purchase or redemption. The death and resurrection of Christ is therefore seen as the climax of the twofold revelation of God as Father indicated in the words of Jesus, My Father and your Father. At the same time, the cross reveals the demand which God's fatherhood makes on all who will be sons, the demand of the love which perfects them, the demand which is ritually represented by burial in water into Christ's death. It can hardly be doubted that Paul refers directly to the use of the prayer, naming it in Hebrew fashion by its first word when he writes, God sent forth his Son, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. A similar allusion in Romans is connected with the same thought of sonship by adoption. Romans 8, verses 14 and 15. Our Father is therefore a memorial of God's redemptive act, and it stands at the same time for his reaching forth towards men through the Holy Spirit, so that he may dwell with the humble in heart. That reaching forth is accomplished through the Word, which is the Spirit made manifest, and through Christ, who is its embodiment. Father, therefore, signifies the indwelling of God in human lives through Christ. As the Master said, I in them and thou in me, that we may be made perfect in one. Yet the very phrase which declares the most precious intimacy of God with man declares also that he is hidden from man. He is our Father, which art in heaven. For these words imply very much more than the bold fact that God's spirit being is focalized somewhere in that fathomless space, which in relation to earth-bound creatures is the heavens. They bring home to us that he whom we can call Father 
is the High and Holy One that inhabiteth eternity. Height, loftiness, exaltation are physical terms, but they are the only language in which we can speak of a spiritual reality. That he is in the heavens is a fact, but it is also far more a symbol of the truth that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts than our thoughts. That no man has seen God at any time is not only historically true. He that dwells in light unapproachable is not merely, if we may so express it, physical fact. These are facts implying profound spiritual truth, the truth that God is hidden from man by his own light, hidden by the very nature of his inviolable purity. While our Father reveals the Lord who is Redeemer, which art in the heavens, declares his separateness, and both aspects of God's relation to men are portrayed in the cross. For here is one who is the gift of God's love that men may not perish, while Christ's death is his own act of obedience. It is nonetheless God's redemptive act which declares his fatherhood for those who will receive it. God has provided the Lamb. But because Christ hangs on the cross as the representative of sin-stricken humanity, there has to be in that hour a withdrawing from him which brings the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This withdrawing is an essential part of his sacrifice, for it testifies to the separateness of God, who is so exalted above man that he must remain hidden from the eyes of sinful flesh. The antithesis which underlies the simple words of the prayer is brought into the fullest light by the dreadful realities of the cross and is reconciled in the resurrection. Yet there is still another side to this thought. For it is this very exaltation of God above man which makes possible what we may call the spiritual miracle of divine forgiveness. It is not in human nature to forgive, nor can we supply any merely logical grounds why God should forgive. But it is precisely because his thoughts are as high as the heavens above human thoughts that the call comes to seek the Lord who will abundantly pardon the penitent. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And so the words in which the prayer are addressed to God declare how close he is to us and how infinitely far off. They show that he who makes his dwelling with the humble is the very same as the one who inhabiteth eternity. And he who is exalted above all height 
has a father's compassion upon his children, whom he draws to himself. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.